Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Peter Neophotis. We've self-identified as gay people. You know, we've been ostracized and made fun of and teased. Damn it, we want someone we want to sleep with. That and more. But before that, I just want to remind you about this fantastic offer we have from adamandeve.com. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item there. When you select your one item at 50% off, you'll also receive three free adult DVDs plus a free exclusive gift. And on top of it all, they'll throw in free shipping for the whole order. It really is just a win-win-win sort of situation for you. You go to adamandeve.com and you use the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Also, you know, at, at this point, trips to the post office might be second nature to you. They seem easy because you've been doing your mailing and shipping that way for so long. But think of what a hassle it actually is. Driving there, finding parking, waiting. There's a better way. Stamps.com. Stamps.com is the easy and convenient way to get postage right from your desk. You buy and print official U.S. postage from your own computer and printer. With Stamps.com, there's no guesswork. They make it easy to get the exact postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail the instant you need it. No need for expensive postage meters. You have to try it. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio and we love it. And right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Planet E behind me now. Now, as you know, I'm usually laughing about something. Actually, I'm usually laughing at the top of the show, folks, because of my own incompetence. When you first hear me say, hello kids, or whatever, I have just finished blowing my ears out, dropping water on the computer, uh, fudging with knobs for a half hour, trying to refigure out each week for seven years how to run my goddamn equipment. So that's usually why I'm I'm so exasperated by the time I'm actually hitting play. And only I know what a Laurel and Hardy routine just went down before we got where we are. But this week, I'm also laughing because there's this hilarious parody of the Risk podcast that was put out. This is why you have to pay attention to our Twitter and Facebook feeds, both places, Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. We love posting when fans create things or respond to us in moving ways. Uh, this guy, Dave Malkoff, made this hilarious two-minute-long parody of the beginning of each Risk episode, and it's mostly making fun of the fact that I'm never not laughing. And you rarely know why. We are calling today's episode... Hurt Joy, which is a very strange title, but you're about to hear why in the following story. Sam Levine is going to explain it. Sam is one of the stars of one of the most legendary TV shows of the past, I don't know, 20 years or so. Freaks and Geeks, not to mention great stuff since then, like Children's Hospital or Wet Hot American Summer or freaking Tarantino. He was in Inglorious Bastards, the bastard. Here he is now at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles. This is Sam Levine with a story we call Schadenfreude. It's already set to Hobbit height. How lucky for me. I don't have to do the awkward readjusting thing. Uh, so the, the theme of today's show, as you well know, is rejoice. But I am a cold, heartless bastard inside. So I rejoice uh, a lot of the time uh, when I, I see others who I believe deserve to uh, fail. <laughs> or... Get, get their shit thrown back at them. You would think of all the years we've been having the English language, we still don't have a word for that. Leave it to the fucking Germans. Schadenfreude. That's what that means. It means hurt joy is literally what it means. I get joy from watching you hurt. Fucking Germans. You know what the German word for pen is? Anyone know? Kugelschreiber. Pen. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm going to take you way back. The year is 1999. I am working on the television program Freaks and Geeks. I'm. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, no, please. No, please. Thank you. Very kind. 
So I come all the way to Los Angeles from New Jersey, but I don't come alone because I'm uh, 17 years old, you see. So my dear, sweet, wonderful mother makes the journey with me. So two of us pack up a couple of suitcases and move on out to L.A. And when you're a teenager and an actor and you move to L.A., where do you live? The Oakwoods, that's correct. But, unbeknownst to most of you, the Oakwoods used to have a second, way less douchey location in Sherman Oaks. Uh, The building, it's... (laughs) It was one of the only buildings in Sherman Oaks that actually completely fell down in the 94 Northridge quake. (laughs) So my mother was like, this is the building we're living in. They built a brand new building there. It won't fall down. That's the one I want to live in. So we lived in the Sherman Oaks Oakwoods, which was a fine building. But the problem with the building was the layout of it, how it was all put together, wasn't really great. Uh, It was divided into like two wings and each wing only had one elevator, and they were not big elevators. And the basement level was where everyone parked their cars, and then you'd go in through this little door, and then you'd hang out, and then like on your right over there was the laundry room, and then up against the wall was the elevator. And the problem with this was, if I finished work and was home, you know, came back to the apartment at like, 5.30 or 6 o'clock, all of the people with actual jobs were showing up at that same time. And everyone was waiting for this goddamn elevator. And so you'd oftentimes have crowds of 12, 15 people all just standing there, crowding around the door, waiting for it to open. But at best, you could fit like eight of us on there. So one fateful day, I think it was August of 1999. We hadn't been shooting Freaks and Geeks long, and I hadn't been living in the Oakwoods long, but there I was, waiting for the elevator. There's only three floors in this place, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting, and there is a crowd building up behind me, a sizable crowd of people, and there are now so many people all around me. I have nowhere else to go except to pray that eventually the elevator doors do open so I can step in. So finally, after what felt like an eternity, the doors open, and there is one woman on the elevator going down. She had a basket of laundry with her, and I'll I'll, I'll paint the picture for you. She was probably about 36, 37, blonde, of average height and weight, the worst resting bitch face I've ever seen on a human being. And I already know this is going to get uncomfortable because the door is open and she's got this big laundry basket and most of the people in the back of this little group waiting, they can't even see that this is what I'm dealing with. So I can't like back up to let her go through or anything. So I do this weird move where I sort of like get like right up against the door. Like I push my back up against the door so like she could squeeze past me and there's plenty of room. I'm not a big guy. And so I'm leaning up against the door, and she fucking scowls at me as she's moving past with her laundry basket. And I don't say anything, and she just, like, gets past and then, like, kind of brushes her elbow past me and, like, makes contact. And then at a very unreasonable level of volume goes, couldn't have fucking moved out of the way? (laughs) 
that destroyed me. I don't know why it cut me to the core. I'd never had a stranger bark at me like that. Like, I definitely know she said, couldn't have fucking moved. She may have even said, like, couldn't have fucking moved, asshole. Like, it just, I don't know why, it just took me aback. I was so upset by it. Like, I went and I got on the elevator, and then a couple other people got on. I swear one of them was like, it's okay, son, she's just awful. <laughs> like, I, someone should have done that if they didn't. I mean, here's what I remember about that night. That made me so sad. It just made me so on edge. I couldn't enjoy anything the rest of the day. I couldn't enjoy the wonderful dinner my sweet mother cooked for me. I couldn't enjoy, if memory serves, watching French Stewart on The Daily Show that night. <laughs> Nothing. My whole evening was ruined. And I was like, oh, man, nobody even said anything to her. Like, I can't believe that. Nobody was like, hey, don't yell at a teenager. You're awful. He had nowhere else to go. No, nobody said anything. So that was a Friday night. Finally went to sleep. That was that. Next morning, when you're on a TV show, at least I, back in the 90s, I don't know if they still do it now, every show in prime time has its own softball team. And they play in what's known as the Primetime Softball League. And since uh, we were all kid actors on the show, we didn't know any better. It's really for the crews of the show. We didn't know that. So we were like, oh, we'll, we'll get uniforms and we'll play. So I leave my uh, apartment in the morning, real excited. I'm in my Freaks and Geeks jersey, got my Freaks and Geeks cap, got my, my mitt, got everything going. And I go and uh, I get on the elevator. I'm up on the third floor. And I hit basement, and then the elevator goes down to the second floor, and the doors open, and guess who gets on? <laughs> Resting bitch face. Active bitch face, actually. <laughs> and I'm standing right by all the numbers on the thing, and she gets on, and then for some reason just walks to the opposite corner. So she's behind me, and she goes, Could you hit lobby? and I do nothing. She says, could you hit the lobby? Nothing. And then the woman lunges in front of me and angrily smacks the lobby button. It's too late, we've already gone down to the basement. She smacks the lobby button and then gives me the dirtiest fucking scowl, 10 times dirtier than the night before. And so I look at this woman totally shocked and surprised and everything, and gave her my best version of this, which was, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. Did you have something? <laughs> because what could possibly be better than allowing her to think she cursed at a deaf, disabled teenager who is presumably on his way to his freaks and geeks disabled person softball league. Resting bitch face turned into the most pale, white, horrified bitch face I've ever seen. And she's just looking at me, deer in the headlights. I just went, do you? At the elevator. Thank you. But of course, the fucking joke was on me because I lived in that apartment complex for nine more months. 
and had to pretend to be fucking deaf every time I saw her. But schadenfreude, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. This is Risk. This is Sleigh Bells behind me now, and we just heard from Sam Levine. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for epic geek and gamer items and pop culture gear for less than $20 a month. You get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 on any new subscription. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service. It's an entire community of fans that share the experience and interact with each other around the unboxing of each month's crate. And they guarantee $40 or more in value in every crate. Sometimes it's a lot more. Every month, there's a different theme, and all the items are curated around that theme. Previous crates have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, many more. Join us as we celebrate the futuristic. We've packed July's crate with items from some of pop culture's favorite prognostications of science and the future look toward tomorrow with items from rick and morty i love rick and morty so very much futurama star trek mega man valiant comics and star trek i fuck they put star trek in the goddamn copy twice including a model a figure and don't forget a monthly tea and pin Remember, you only have until July 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk. That's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk. And enter the code risk to save $3 on your new subscription today.
Now, our second story on today's episode, and the final one, is quite unique. It's got a delightfully literary quality to it because Peter Neophotis is the author and performer of Concord, Virginia, a southern town in 11 stories, which was the winner of the Pirate's Alley William Faulkner Award and finalist for the William Sarayan International Prize for Fiction. Peter came over to my apartment in Harlem and sat down, shared this story with me one afternoon earlier this summer, and boy, what a delightful day that was, and now you can be a part of it here with us, too. Here is Peter Neophotis with the story we call Persephone's Storyteller. This is the first time I ever told a true story. I've told a lot of fictional stories, but never a true story that actually happened to me. So it's it's rather nerve-wracking. But it's about how storytelling saved my life. You know, so I'm a southern boy. I grew up in a small town called Lexington, Virginia, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's uh, right where the Allegheny and the Blue Ridge Mountains converge. And so you can literally see the mountain ranges on either side of the town. There's a beautiful river called the Mare that flows through it. And surrounding this beautiful brick street town is uh, the Virginia Military Institute, which is like this castle in the background. And also this school, uh, neoclassical building, is called Washington and Lee University. Yes, Washington and Lee, named after the general Robert E. Lee. Because Lexington, Virginia is the mecca of the South, because... The greatest Civil War generals of the Confederacy are both laid to rest there. And so it was not unusual for me as a child to go to the Stonewall Jackson Cemetery, where my grandparents are both buried, and see, you know, the tomb of Stonewall Jackson and lemons scattered around his tomb, because Jackson loved to suck on lemons before battle. So people still go to the tomb of Stonewall Jackson and throw lemons on top of his uh, grave so he can suck on them from the other world and what have you. So it's a wonderful place, it's a fabled place, it's a beautiful place, but if you haven't noticed already, I'm also queer. And I use that term queer rather than gay or homosexual because I knew I was queer before I ever thought of sleeping with another man. It was just the way I was, you know. I, I just loved to pick flowers and, um, you know, go walking about and doing strange things. The stranger the better. You know, during the, um, the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding controversy, I got so obsessed with figure skating that I taught myself how to jump up in the air and spin three times around and then land on one foot. And I I used to do this in gym class. It was a great party trick. So I was always peculiar. And Lexington, Virginia was not the place where this might be the best idea, right? And, you know, when we talk about queer and what is it to be queer, you know, I think 
it's sort of like a Venn diagram, right? Homosexuals are often queer, but not all queers are homosexuals and what have you. But my point is, a lot of homosexuals just happen to also be queer. And I think that's why a lot of homosexuals end up in the theater, because it gives them an outlet to express their peculiarities. You know, so th but how, if you're very queer, do you do it in your daily life? You know, we just don't want to save it for the stage. You want to do it at all moments of your daily life. And so that was a challenge. And I ended up, fortunately, you know, as much as I had to hide it, uh, having the unfortunate incident of taking Latin. And in high school, I had the most extraordinary Latin teacher. Her name was Carter Stubbs Drake, and she looked like an Etruscan. She was big boned and tall, but she didn't have an ounce of fat on her. She used to fox hunt. And she had this hair that was like pasted to her skull and blue, just like you'd see in a Roman bus. And she'd walk around and she had this most intimidating demeanor. She had such high expectations. It was unbelievable, but she was also very interested in your life, and it was this wonderful balancing act, because she was so demanding, yet she was so kind at the same time, and even though you were utterly terrified of Carter Drake, you also knew that when you were in her classroom, you were very, very safe, because if any student was inappropriate to another student in Carter Drake's presence, she'd kill them. You just knew it. You never saw it happen because she just had that stare. You know, all the power and anger and glory of Rome was in this woman. And so Latin was a very safe place. And freshman year, I had to do some sort of art project for Latin, right? So I decided, and you know, there were several options, that I would memorize 20 lines in Latin. And I chose the most dramatic scene of mythology, which is the rape scene of mythology, which is where Persephone is snatched by the god of the underworld and taken back down with him. So um, when it was, you know, my turn to do uh, my presentation, you know, after someone presented their pantheon made of sugar cubes, I got up in a off-white linen tunic and a purple toga and had a little sash and some flowers in my hand, and I began. And I still remember the opening lines. It was... Quodam persepine luco laudet et ut violus ut candida lilia carpet. Dumque polare studio calathosque sedumque. Implet et aequales curtat superiore legendo. And in the scene, I describe Persephone dancing through a field of flowers with her mother and her companions gaily. And then the god of the underworld rises up and snatches Persephone from her happiness and seizes her and drags her to the underworld. And she cries to her mother and her companions. And mind you, I'm doing this in front of my entire class as I'm screaming and yelling. And then I ended the monologue on the floor. Weeping over the loss of Persephone's virginity and maidenhood as I threw flowers into the air and then collapsed. Well, the class looked at me. Then they all looked at Carter Drake. And she took off her spectacles and she said, That was better than what wins best in show at the Virginia Junior Classical League Convention. 
wonderful, truly wonderful. And to this day, I don't think I ever got a better compliment in my life. Because Carter Drake did not pass out compliments often. And she had just dished out one of the very best ones to me. So we were connected in this wonderful way. And uh, I ran for president of the Latin Club at the end of the year. And she encouraged me. And I won. It wasn't that hard to win, really. I don't think many people were interested in the job. But, you know, and I, I held it for three years. She referred to it as the quiet dictatorship of Peter Neophotis. And it was wonderful because... As president of the Latin Club, I had license to go to school dressed essentially in drag. I mean, not really, but if there was ever a Roman occasion of any significance, I could just come to school dressed in a flowing off-white tunic with my purple toga over my shoulders, and I had a little sash as well. I just want you to picture this, because it's, it's, it is looking back rather absurd. I went to a consolidated high school in Lexington, Virginia. This is the Shenandoah Valley. Yes, there were 50 kids from the colleges, you know, whose parents were college professors. But in a class of 300, there were also those who wore Confederate flags sewn into their clothes. Or all, you know, whole groups of people who hung out together because they were from the same country holla and had the same grandma or something like that. And so they displayed the slight or even obvious signs of inbreeding. And so, you know, it was a strange place to be, you know. And so, you know, think, picture this for a moment. You know, 90s, 1990s, Clinton administration, a cinder-blocked hallways, you know, throngs of people, girls making out with their boyfriends in the hallway, big belt buckles, camouflage was a popular fashion statement because the men would be going hunting later that afternoon, as was Blaze Orange, you know, and then walking through the throngs of people with a heavy L.L. Bean backpack on, nevertheless, a saunter to my step, and a flowing off-white linen tunic and purple toga would be little old me. And no one said a thing. I wasn't queer. I was just president of the Latin Club, and it was the Ides of March, or maybe it was Saturnalia. Perhaps we were celebrating the birth of one of the kings of Rome, Servius Tullius, whose ascent to power was foretold after an eagle flew off with his hat and returned. Or maybe Romulus and Remus, the kings of Rome, who were left on a hillside to die, but then were raised and suckled on the tits of a she-wolf. Who knows? We're talking about ancient Rome, a civilization that lasted over a thousand years. It was hard not to find a day in the calendar that had, you know, not forever altered the fate of mankind. Shoot, even within the life of Cleopatra herself were enough incidents between births, deaths, murders, sleeping with brothers, and, you know, kings of Rome, the snake incident, that one could keep the calendar full for a year. You know, and Carter Drake even had to put it in the morning announcements. Today, the Latin Club will be dressed in Roman attire to celebrate the birthday of Hadrian. Or something like that. And even though it was usually just me and Carter dressed up, that big-boned, fox-hunting, Roman-haired woman had my back. 
So senior year, we decided we would take my Rape of Persephone scene to Latin convention. But we decided that, you know, we couldn't do it in Latin because normally the, at Latin convention you had to perform in Latin and the scenes were assigned lines. Normally, um, the assigned lines were like some Roman general like speaking to his troops before battle or something like that. And I'm a good actor, but that was outside my range. <laughs> But it did occur to us that I could enter the storytelling competition if I just translated the Ovid um, rape scene and also added some embellishments and highlighted some of Ovid's embellishments, including this fabulous scene where Sayane, the famous Sicilian sea nymph, rises from a river and tries to halt Pluto from stealing Persephone. She rises from the water and bares her breasts and spreads her arms and says, Halt this! How dare you steal this maiden from her mother against her will! It's very dramatic and, and like the original scene and this storytelling thing which lasted about five minutes involved me and my tunic and toga and waving my arms around and crying and screaming over the Persephone as she was being raped by Pluto and at the end I then would collapse onto the ground and throw the flowers way up into the air and then weep on the ground over the loss of Persephone's virginity and maidenhood. Carter coached me on the whole thing, and that spring we got in a yellow school bus with a couple other Latin students and went to Richmond to see what I could do. And damn it if her prediction, three years prior, did not come true, and I won Best in Show. Which was a huge deal! I would men out beat all age groups and categories. There were lots of rounds, but the judges just couldn't get over this kid screaming and crying and throwing flowers in the air over the loss of Persephone's maidenhood and innocence. And they just kept on advancing me, and I won best in the show. And they just, just thought it would be the best performance to have, which was the honor of the winner of best in show of the dramatics competition. You, you got to perform in front of the the entire Virginia Junior Classical League delegation, which was 5,000 people, which is more people than I've ever performed in front of live in my life. You know, I don't know where all those kids come from. I guess there are a lot of kids in Northern Virginia after all. But anyway, so, you know, at the end of the convention, they announced my name. They were like, Peter Neophotis, the winner of the Best in Show, will now perform the famed rape scene of mythology. <laughs> And the normal clamoring audience just went like bone silence, like bone silence. And I walked up on stage and everyone looked at me and I was in my, you know, purple toga and flowing tunic. And then I just began. And I don't remember much of the performance, except, you know, it was very, I was very emotional. And I ended up like weeping hysterically on the ground at the end. And the audience erupted. And I, I just ran off the stage afterwards, after I took my little bow slash curtsy. I just ran off the stage where Carter Drake was. And it was like this, you know, like full on, totally inappropriate, like football style hug. I just like ran into him like. Boom! You know, we just, it was just so emotional. Like, if someone had caught it on YouTube, like, these days, it might be like, oh, what was going on between those two? But at the time, like, everyone thought it was totally cool. Like, I had just been weeping on the ground over the loss of this woman's, like, maidenhood slash innocence. And there was my Latin teacher, and I just had to hug her. It was just wonderful. So, yeah. So, Car and Drake and I kept in contact after I went to Columbia, and um, it was really great. And we would, you know, uh, you know, do things while I was home over Christmas and uh, during the summer. And I, I just want to also comment that there's something wonderful that a gay man, in the relationship that they can have with an older woman, because there's nothing edible going on. Edible. 
you know, like the edible complex, you know. You can be very close. I remember once we went to Limecown, which was this outdoor theater in my hometown, and we saw Lady Mac- uh, Macbeth, and we had a little picnic beforehand. And during the play, it got cold, and the mosquitoes were out, so we got our blanket out, and there we were, like huddled together under this blanket in the front row, you know, and uh, it wasn't weird at all. There was Everyone knew that was just Peter Neophotus and his Latin teacher, a queer and his Latin teacher. Nothing peculiar at all about what's going on going on there <laughs> anyway so senior year i called her to ask her if she wanted to go have a, uh, a coffee right over christmas and she said to me you know peter i have some news and i said what is it she said i'm engaged and i said i heard it was the talk of the town i can't wait to speak to you about it and when she arrived at the coffee shop, she was like a brand new woman. I mean, you know, her curls were no longer pasted to her skull, but they had grown out. And she dyed her hair brown. And she had these sunglasses on that just made her look like a rock star. And she was just so happy. You know, and, and not that Cardi Drake wasn't happy before, but let's be honest. You know, no one wants to live for decades in a small southern town all by themselves. And I think, you know, part of the reason I had a connection with her is because as a gay man and a queer man growing up in a small town, I know what it's like to feel isolated and alone. Will you meet someone that you will fall in love with and they'll fall in love with you? We're not totally in control of that, right? And I think Carter Drake did have a frustration. Even though she was a wonderful human being in so many ways, she hadn't met that person. But now she had. And his name was Lloyd, and he taught computer science at Washington Lee, and they liked to go on drives and take photos on Sundays. And she was just giddy. And I said, when are you going to get married? And she said, I don't know, Pete. But, you know, when you're over 50, you're not quite sure how to do these things. Anyway, uh, about um, three months later, I got a phone call from a friend of mine whose mom works with uh, Carter. And uh, she said, Pete, do you know what's what happened to hear about Carter? I said, did, did her and Lloyd elope? Damn it! And she said, no, Peter. She has cancer. Skin cancer, and it's metastasized. She has just a few months to live. So we exchanged a few emails and letters, and I got some nice notes back from her. And that summer also, she sent me an email saying that the experimental treatments that she had attempted had uh, failed. And um, she hadn't planted a garden this year. Um, But the, uh, the summer rains had brought beautiful wildflowers through her yard and uh, she was so grateful that God had given her Lloyd and she was ready to sail into the sunset it's hard for me to still express why that upset me so much but you know after the funeral when I came back to New York I found myself walking down the streets just bursting into tears and on Sunday mornings I would wake up and I couldn't do anything so I started to write these stories about Carter but I couldn't write them so I wrote these stories about the town I grew up in 
but I change things to make them all have happy endings. I wanted that so much. And there was always a lot of death and murder in them, but they always had to have some redemptive quality. I didn't want to steal Carter Drake's story. I didn't feel at the time it was mine to sort of take control of and write a biography of her, right? But one thing I learned from her, myths often are lots of aspects of lots of people's stories. And it's restructured narrative. And so one of the things that I became very interested in those weeks where I was sort of mourning, and I remember literally drawing diagrams on sheets of, of different types of mythological narrative arcs in what happens in, in Greek plays. And then I sort of drew aspects from a lot of different people's stories and tried to put it into one story. And so I was creating something that was new. Because really, why I was so upset about what happened to Carter was just about much about me as it was about her. You know, I mean, I was mortified. And so in the abandoned church... What happens is a singer leaves a small southern town to move to New York, has some success, then someone in her family dies, her sister, and she has to move home to take care of her sister's son, raises her son in a small southern town, and, you know, is doing the best he can, and the son dies at the end of the story. It's very sad, but then the town sort of rallies behind her and this sort of beautiful scene at the end. And so it does have a redemptive story. And why that embodied Carter is she had told me on one of our bus trips to Latin convention that, you know, her life hadn't, like a lot of ours, hadn't gone according to plan exactly. She had, you know, gotten her master's in Latin and uh, classics at William and Mary, thinking that she would become a curator at some museum in Europe or something like that. She didn't want to really live in Lexington for the rest of her life. But her father had gotten sick when she had finished her master's, and she had moved home to take care of him, and then he had died, and there she was. So that aspect is in the story. And I think also there's this aspect of me moving to New York and trying to be a storyteller, performer, whatnot. And there's also aspects. There were people who died, their death struck me. So I sort of put it all there. But for some reason, only by recreating a tale could I feel like I was actually putting all the emotions of the combined feelings of everyone into one little story and I worked on them for about two years and I had a few that I thought were really good but I couldn't get an agent to read any of them and I got really frustrated so someone sent me down to Cornelia Street Cafe which is this wonderful place in Greenwich Village they said maybe they'll let you read it that could do something and so I went down there and I talked to the curator Angela Verga and he said I'll read your story the moment I get it in the mail and send it to me and on 6 a.m. on a Saturday, I got a phone call from him. He said, I read your story, The Abandoned Church. 
I just love it. It's wonderful. He's a postman. That's his day job, so he's always waking up early. But he said, uh, you can read it in five months. And I decided I would memorize the story word for word. It was called The Abandoned Church. And it wasn't about Carter, but it involved all the emotions I felt about it. For some reason, fiction sometimes has that power. It can hold more truth about a story than if you try to write the story down. Sometimes, right? I was so excited... I memorized the story, it went really well, and after the performance, uh, it was an amateur night, Angelo came up to me, gave me a big hug, and he said, you know what, if you have any more stories, I'd love for you to do a full night here. And I said, you bet I do. I had a story called The Vultures. And so, uh, yeah, we planned it for June. So I was on cloud nine. I'd always wanted to do a one-man show, and here I was doing it in New York City, you know, in my 20s, in Greenwich Village. Had little flyers made. My mom planned to come up from Lexington. Uh, a couple friends were taking a bus up. And uh, then one night I was online doing a little dating, because uh, that's what gays do in New York City. And I met this man who was so handsome, I did not believe he was real. And we agreed to meet. And I didn't think when I saw him that he would be real. You know, I thought some, like, old dude would show up or something like that. And then he showed up, and he was even more beautiful than his photos, which never happens, right? He was just stunning by all accounts. Not that I'm a bad-looking man, but it takes men of certain open-mindedness to find me attractive. I think, I, you know, my queerness resonates through my face. Maximilian, on the other hand, was just beautiful. There was no questions asked. The, the face was perfectly symmetrical. You know, he might have had plastic surgery looking back. I mean, and when I met him and walked up to him, he embraced me and he said, you're so beautiful. Okay, so he was French. And so for the rest of the story, I'll be talking in a terrible French accent. I'm doing the best I can. But anyway, so we met and I found out as we were talking that he was very wealthy and, you know, he was cultured. He was just like this Prince Charming and we were having coffee at a Starbucks. And at one point I turned around and I said, is this, is this a joke? Is this a joke? Is Candid Camera going to come out of somewhere and be like, surprise! <laughs> you know, but I actually asked him and he, he looked at me and said, this is not a joke. This is very real. And then he reached across the table and put his hand on top of mine. I think one of the idiosyncrasies that I liked about him was that he seemed so interested in talking. We shared a lot of stories. And he was interested in science and writing. Actually, you know, the funny thing is, is he looked at parts of my of Concord, Virginia. And actually, you know, didn't, I wouldn't, I won't say edited it, but gave me some advice on some of the stories. You know, he would look at things and say, oh no, you need to shorten this and, you know, put this here. So he, he had a certain intelligence about him. Gay men are often criticized because we put a lot of emphasis on being with someone who we're attracted to. And that's because we have gone through a lot of trouble to be gay. I mean, if we just wanted to be with someone we liked, that, you know, was fun to be around, well, you know, we, there are a lot of women out there that are fabulous. You know? We got a lot of women out there that I just love to hang out with and go shopping with and all that stuff. Buying plants, you know what I mean? And, but, you know, we, we self-identified as gay people, you know, we've been ostracized and made fun of and teased. Damn it, we want someone we want to sleep with. You know? So... 
Uh, Max had that combination. He was very smart and fun and funny and interested in me and interested in me for my cerebral qualities, I think, in a lot of ways. And Carter and Lloyd had shared, from what she discussed to me about him, a lot of the same things. They liked going on drives. He loved museums. They just appreciated each other. I met him once. And he was delightful just to talk to. So I think that yeah, I did feel that, uh, like Carter, that I did meet someone that appreciated me for all my sort of strangeness. Because he got a hoot out of me. You know, I remember he did get a hoot out of all my little strangeness things. But um, unlike Carter, I, I didn't meet him at the end of my life, is what I was grateful for, you know. And it was strange and wonderful to be Maximilian. So, you know, we, we, he would call me every night and talk to me for hours. And I found out that he was some um, sort of French aristocrat who had inherited a seen amount of money from his parents. And then he had tripled or quadrupled his fortune by starting some internet company that also puts, like, if, you know, someone's wearing Ray-Bans in a movie, like, that's an advertisement. So he rewrote scripts to put products in all the scripts. That's what he told me. And it made sense because he had so much money he would wear these watches that were i think they're called pajits or something they're like a quarter of a million dollars each right and he always had a different one on right and you know we'd be walking down the street and he would just walk into a store and spend three thousand dollars on clothes that he never tried on right and little things like if it started raining while we were having coffee he would send text messages and someone would run by with an umbrella that i never got over right He told me stories about his life. I wanted to hear about mine. You know, I found out that he had training as a medical doctor, then as a lawyer. He thought being a lawyer was boring, so that's how he got into advertising. And there was just all these things. Um, you know, he just wanted to spend an obscene amount of time and get to know me because he wanted to integrate me into his life. That's what he said. But then one day we were having coffee, and he said, you know, you're, you're very wonderful. I just don't... Um, I don't want you to do this show. And I, I just looked at him and said, what show? What do you mean? And he's like, you stupid little show. Stupid little show. I was like, I love that I'm doing this show. He's like, this show won't make any money. You know, you're wasting your time. You should focus on your, your, your science. And I just thought it was really weird. I mean, I, I guess I'm not the first person in the world who had a potential mate think they should be re more realistic with their aspirations. But normally such situations happen when, you know, one person has a baby or something not something like that. Not when, you know, the person making the complaint spends $250,000 on a watch. So it was very strange. And when I became stubborn with him and told him that I wouldn't cancel my show, and this is after months of seeing him, he just stopped wanting to see me. The loving phone call stopped. The text messages. And I remember our final time we saw each other, we were outside the American Museum of Natural History. And uh, we met at a bench there, and I showed up wearing blue jeans and a blue shirt. And he said to me, he said, I'm so mad that you, I could kill you. I want to make love with you right now, but I can't because you're a storyteller. 
And I said, you know, I don't understand why this is such a big deal. And he was like, my parents would be, you know, my, I'm from a very, very wealthy family. It will make me look horrible if you do this. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. And he's like, if you really want to be a celebrity, you can, you know, uh, be in a soap opera. I'll make a few phone calls and then you can be in a soap opera. But this will never make any money, you know. And I was like, but I don't want to be in a soap opera. I want to tell this story, you know. I want to be a storyteller. And he said, well, then do the works of Shakespeare or Homer, but, you know, not this. You'll never be as good as them. And I said, I just need to scream about what happened, though. And he said, what? About what happened to Carter? Because life is beautiful, but it's horrible. And I need to scream about it. And then we looked at each other, and uh, he didn't understand. And so I walked away. And we never saw each other again. We never spoke again. And I, I did do the show at Cornelia Street, and it went very well. I got a standing ovation, which is not that big of a deal. It was all my friends, really, you know, 60 of my friends. But they all showed up, and I just felt like a star that night, you know? My mom was there and everything, you know? But there was a retired theater director there who offered to um, coach me. And then I was booked at Dixon Place in the Bowery, and I ran for 11 months, once a month. I always had to do a new story, though. And at the end of those 11 months, St. Martin's, did end up buying the scripts as a book came out of Concord, Virginia, Southern Town, and 11 Stories, which won some wonderful awards. So, yeah, little dreams can happen, right? You know, it can happen. You know, I love that I did that. I love that I was a storyteller, and I still am a storyteller. I don't know who I'd be if I weren't one. But nevertheless, there was a part of me that, you know, did miss Maximilian. And one night I was in, um, after the book came out, I created a little sort of tour and I went to the Minneapolis French Festival and Minneapolis was a sort of a watershed moment for me because it was the first time I performed as a storyteller in front of people who didn't know me at all you know I just showed up with a suitcase to Minneapolis and that's a wonderful theater town I mean they just understand storytelling they were with me the moment I opened up my mouth and I got wonderful reviews and, and everything was going great in Minneapolis you know one of the critics said it was one of the best shows at the Fringe but nevertheless I couldn't get any producer to show up to my show. I emailed and emailed nothing. No one would help me take the show to the next level. And that was really sad for me because I felt I'd done so much myself. You know, there is a point where you need a little help to become, you know, what we think of as an entertainer. And so, you know, there was a night before I left Minneapolis, which I loved Minneapolis so much, where I said, you know, perhaps Maximilian was right. Perhaps it is impossible to do what I want to do and make you know, any money or have any real success. What is real, though? <sighs> I wonder what he's up to, I thought. So I Googled him. Now, are you ever at those cocktail parties, dinner parties, where you go around the table and you talk about who dodged the biggest bullet? Or is it just me? <laughs> is it just the cocktail parties I go to? Because <laughs> I seem to be at them a lot. But anyway, I once dated this uh, Frenchman who uh, tried to kill my dreams of becoming a storyteller and uh, claimed to be a billionaire. And then um, after he broke up, I found out that he... Uh, convinced this old lady who was very rich to adopt him 
Then he tried to poison her. And then when that failed, he then married this really rich billionaire media mongol. And, you know, after they got married, he did successfully poison him to death. Then he produced a will in London court saying that the billionaire, uh, this Australian media mongol, left Maximilian all his money. And uh, he went out and bought Porsches for all the witnesses of this supposed will. Um, but it was seen as a little suspicious. He had also duped a talent manager out of $500,000. And so the talent manager paid to have the media mongols' ashes autopsied and found out that there was poison in the ashes. So he ended up not getting the money. Now he's in um, jail in Paris, I think. We lost touch. But his brother and sister-in-law have come forth and said that they believe that my ex also killed their parents for the money. I also found out that the media mongol that he had murdered for all that money 20 years prior had been his lover and had tried to make Maximilian a star. Maximilian wanted to be a, a musical pop star and had failed. Despite all the money behind him, despite all the talent, Maximilian was extraordinarily talented in so many ways. Despite all his extraordinary beauty, they just didn't have control over the fact that he just didn't stick as an artist. And perhaps Maximilian felt some anger toward that media mongol for not warning him that despite all these advantages and all this effort, the potential to do something else with one's life might be wasted. And perhaps Maximilian thought, hey, if I can't do it with all my advantages, how does this hick from the South think he can make anything of himself telling some stories about his dead Latin teacher? And maybe he was right. But that's still not the reason I tell stories. I tell stories because I have to. Just like Carter and Lloyd used to just drive around on their Sundays and take photos. To capture life in its most beautiful ways and learn from it. And I can honestly say that there has not been a day in these past 12 years where I have not been walking down the street or sitting at a, uh, a bench doing my daily task, my lab work, and I have not wished so much that Carter Drake had lived. But the stories of our lives have the potential to be wonderful if we choose to be a celebratory character every day, which is what I try to be. That boy in an off-white linen tunic and flowing purple toga with flowers in his hair walking to the throngs of people forever mourning over the loss of a maiden stolen too soon from this life. But just as she taught me, unafraid, to cry out and scream.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Stars Behind Me Now, covering the Smiths, of course. And we just heard from Peter Neophotis. Now, Peter has written a new book called The Bright Eagle, for which he's seeking literary representation. Feel free to email Peter at pgn6 at columbia.edu or check out his website at neophotis.com, N-E-O-F-O-T-I-S.com. Thanks again to Loot Crate, the monthly subscription box for geeks, gamers, and pop culture nerds. Join us as we celebrate the futuristic. We've packed July's crate with items from some of pop culture's favorite prognostications of science and the future. Look towards tomorrow with items from Rick and Morty, Futurama, Star Trek, Mega Man, and Valiant Comics, including a model, a figure, and don't forget, a monthly tea and pin. You only have until July 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com risk and enter the code risk to save $3 on your new subscription today. Risk will be live in Brooklyn on July 27th at the Bell House. On July 30th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. On August 5th, we are in Toronto in Canada. On August 6th, we are in Montreal. Come on out, Toronto and Montreal, folks. On September 17th, we are back in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the theme that night is outrageous, so be sure to pitch us, folks, from Salt Lake. We are at the submissions page at risk-show.com. And here's one that's pretty far out. November 12th, we're in Baltimore. Baltimore, the theme that night is wounded, and uh, you can find us, like I said before, risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. So, uh, you know, uh, like Romulus and Remus, I mean, the founders of Rome literally were suckled on tits of a she-wolf. I mean, that's bizarre. That's not George Washington's tale. Right? <laughs>